News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. It's Thursday afternoon. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer and Alex Brooklyn. We're joined by Ben Max of Gotham Gazette and Max and Murphy podcast and on your radio on WBAI, who uh, has been good enough to be with us at pretty much every election night or uh, day after since we've started this pod. And he's back again to uh, get real New York specific, because while you've been staring mouth agape at Trump and what's happening nationally, there's tons of interesting contests here and lots more coming up next year. Later in the episode, Alex talks with another regular guest, Albert Fox Khan, about that guy, Cuomo, who's talking the talk when it comes to privacy. But is he serious? So with all that said, Alex, do you want to fill us in on what's been happening in New York City on another slow news week? (laughs) So a lot is happening in New York this week, but we're probably only going to go over a few things. The numbers are going up. Mom and pop shops, unfortunately, are going down. Uh, the mayor is opening up more streets and making more bike lanes as the traffic is getting increasingly unbearable. But what I wanted to talk about mostly was the fact that there were a lot of protests last night, but there weren't as many protests, nor were there as violent of protests as there was a police response. We had a couple. And last night was uh, was election night. We're talking about last night was the night the after night election after night. election night. So there was what? no protests or no major protests on actual election night, and there was some what I would describe as truly minor, uh, like actions being taken. A few kids. In Washington Square Park, there was a huge skirmish on Fifth Avenue and 8th Street where cops started kettling protesters. But this is a quote-unquote protest where I felt comfortable enough to stroll through with no credentials. I mean, there there wasn't a lot of violence going on. It was nothing even compared to some of the unpoliced parades we've been seeing. And uh, Corey Johnson this morning in a tweet uh, condemned it, saying that's incredibly disturbing videos. However, our state senator, Julia Salazar, kind of shot back a little, saying, you know, any legislator that was involved in passing that quote-unquote defund bill um, should be a little wary of hypocritical, you know, actions as they're talking about how disturbing the cop videos are. So Victoria Bekempis reported in her awesome newsletter, allegedly, that Dermot Shea has actually been prepping for uh, election protests for quite some time and prepping for them as though they were going to be as large um, and as violent and as vandalistic as the George Floyd protests were, um, even though nobody else thought that it would be the same kind of thing. Um, He mentioned that these protests could go on for a couple weeks, 
Uh, and what I saw last night was just a huge show of force, so much so that there was four police vans on almost every corner going from West 4th Street to 8th Street, and several police I saw lounging around outside of their van just smoking cigars, at least five of them. So, like, they seem pretty chill. I was chill enough to walk through this really big protest, and I think it all comes around to the fact that, like, the whole defund situation, terrible PR campaign, especially in a pandemic as soon as, like, shootings are going up. But taking money out of the police budget was primarily done through their overtime. And I think this is a really good example of, like, how that is completely unenforceable. So, you know, our our defund plans or our shifting money from the cops to anything else sort of went out the window. And I think we saw that happen last night. And all this was in response to uh, to the election, Shea's planning, and uh, the idea that, that that this might be another chaotic wave. We had a brief one after uh, the Floyd protests started. Obviously, the Floyd protests went on for months after that and were happening before that. There were two nights where Manhattan seemed uh, out of control. There was looting in the Bronx. Um, and in anticipation of this election, you had all these stores in Manhattan in particular boarding up and uh, preparing for the worst. And uh, clearly that didn't happen. But the NYPD was out as though it was going to. I know there were also helicopters circling all around Manhattan. And so these people I know who were not going to be at the protests and are not otherwise radical at all were fuming at the NYPD just because there's this like constant, really eerie science fiction like buzzing overhead all the time that just uh it's it's a menacing feel i also was surprised at some of the stores that decided to board up like nobody wants to catch a charge to haul like a two thousand dollar piece of furniture or a modernist interpretation of a sofa so you know some of these <laughs> what you don't think people are going to rob for right. sweet green? yeah <laughs> it's like everybody's settled down do they even take cash now they were one of those creepy places, yeah, that didn't take cash. Yeah, and you know, and I, I think that that's super racist and classist, and I just, I can't stand it. And I love sweet green. You all know I have a sweet green addiction, but I had to sort of put them on pause because that means you don't trust your employees, and also the black and brown employees you have there. It's like you're making a clear uh, policy with this no cash that you only want certain types of people. In Wasn't there a law that was passed to say that every place had to accept cash and then, then that kind of got put on the back burner yeah, back. during COVID mm-hmm. because of obvious touching paper reasons? Mm-hmm. I think it's going yep. into effect soon. Oh, wait, Ben Max is here and he knows all the things about everything in New York. Hello. I love it. <laughs> Yay, crossover podcast. Max and Murphy and FAQ <laughs> NYC. Thanks, oh, Ben. Oh, yeah. Happy to be back. <laughs> ben was like, hey, guys, remember me? <laughs> Taking time out of my busy just, day. Just plotting my entrance <laughs> carefully. We so appreciate you for coming on and helping us make sense of all things New York City and New York State. Um, Quick scene setting, Harry just because me. things are, are happening real fast. It's Thursday afternoon. Uh, it's looking good for Joe Biden. It's not looking so good for Max Rose. It's uh, it's looking a little confusing here in New York with, with a lot of the races. Um, and it's looking real bad for New York in terms of uh, this idea that we were going to have a big stimulus coming uh, with the big blue wave um, and uh, a new New Deal 
and all that to fill this $9 billion over two-year budget hole here and more than twice as much at the uh, state level. And by the time you hear this, maybe on Friday, all this information could have shifted. So so we're doing our best. Um, Chrissy, real quick, before we, we dig in in New York, just what's your view of where things uh, of where things stand nationally for the Democratic Party? And then we'll get into what this means for New York and the uh, results here with Ben. Right. So really quickly, I mean, you know, for our listeners, we know that 270 is the magic number. As Harry said, it looks good for Joe Biden if Arizona and Nevada go his way, then he's got the magic number. And anything that happens after that is just gravy for him. Um, you know, Georgia is getting slimmer and slimmer by the day. Shout out to Stacey Abrams. You know how I feel about Stacey Abrams and all of her amazing work. So it is solidly purple and it looks like it could tip blue. Uh, Pennsylvania, you know, Philadelphia is coming in late because Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan had Republican legislatures that said that their absentee ballots and their early ballots couldn't be counted uh, before the close of of Election Day. And so they also count Election Day ballots first and then the absentees and the, the early votes last. So, you know, Republicans are like, they're cheating. All of a sudden, Biden got lots of votes. It's like, well, read the look, you know, read the books. This is how it happens. So it's looking good for Joe Biden. Obviously, the Democrats should not take a premature lap because anytime you're dealing with someone who will lie, cheat or steal, which is perfectly encompassed in Donald Trump and the Republican Party, um, you have to sort of, you know, stay on guard until you can run through the tape. But as it stands right now, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona and Nevada, if they're all uh, solidly Democrat or at least (laughs) over the margin of Democrat, then Joe Biden is the 46th president of the United States of America. That's where we are right now. Stay vigilant and patience is a virtue. That's drink water. Those are the three things where I'm asked fourth. <laughs> That's where we are. Ben, will you take our listeners through the uh, New York picture where almost all of the interesting races, and there weren't that many in New York City because it's overwhelmingly democratic. And so primaries decide a lot of these contests. But uh, around the state, you know, there was this question about whether or not we're going to have a Democratic supermajority in the state Senate that would weaken uh, Cuomo. There was the Max Rose, Nicole Maliotakis race. Um, and, you know, there hasn't been any Board of Elections disaster, which is new, but it's going to take us, uh, I think, a long time to have final results in these. So if you can just take our listeners through the picture now and what they should understand about what just happened here, that would be awesome. Sure, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, one of the most interesting things just on the election administration front is we're seeing this really nice split finally three ways, early voting, absentee voting in, you know, election day voting, almost like a third, a third, a third. Uh, you know, we'll see what the final final numbers look like uh, here in the city. But, you know, other than some really long lines for some of the days of early voting, we really um, might see a nice new reality here now that we have early voting and we've had expanded uh, universal absentee eligibility. So that's something interesting. Uh, as you noted there, there, there weren't election day shenanigans this year. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things is you're we're seeing in New York what looks like a fairly modest Republican backlash. And that seems to be the result of two things. One, that the Democrats really overextended uh, what people thought was possible in 2018 because they had such a successful year as a backlash to Trump. And then you see a little bit of a sort of recorrection with Trump back on the top of the ballot and being very popular among Republicans and therefore Democrats not uh, being able to expand or hold some of the 
of the seats in the majority that they they thought they could, whether it's for the House seats or the state Senate majority or even a few state assembly seats that it looks like Democrats might lose. But again, these are off of, especially in the state Senate and the state assembly, huge majorities that they uh, have developed either over time or through 2018 in the state Senate. So we're seeing a little bit of a backlash uh, to you know some of what happened in 2018, but really seems to largely be driven by the fact that you had Trump back on the top of the ballot, driving out his voters and helping in some of those districts like the Max Rose situation where virtually any Democrat was going to be in huge trouble in that district this year. And so he looks like he's going to lose his seat, though, we have to always say with the caveat of tens of thousands of absentee ballots still to be counted in that district. But he's in he's in some big trouble. There's lots of things we could get into. I'm interested in what you guys think about, you know, sort of how he ran that race and and the way that the Republicans, led by obviously the nominee, Nicole Maliotakis, sort of ran with Trump against Rose, painting all Democrats as, you know, anti-police and, and anti-public safety. And that was obviously a really big theme in the state Senate races where it seems like Republicans are doing fairly well. But Democrats really do expect to be very close to that 40 seat number that they had coming into the election when it's all said and done. They're very unlikely to expand it uh, to get close to the supermajority of 42 seats in the state Senate. But um you know, it's going to be pretty close, it looks like. And, you know, there's a couple of seats that would be really interesting to see if if Republicans flip them back. But we have to keep in mind in all of this that Democrats just flipped those in 2018. And the supermajority thing is always a little tricky. You know, we, we know this from the whole extended IDC exercise here in that if you have 42 votes and you can override Cuomo, you can hold all 42 of those votes. It's a tremendous leverage to uh, Democrats in moderate districts who want to swing the other way, you know, and you sort of end up in a, a bidding war for, for them. So I, th- I think the fantasy of that is dispositive is, is pretty exaggerated. Um, one other interesting thing that happened, uh, of course, was that we had a vastly increased threshold for third parties in New York to keep their ballot line, which a lot of people think was aimed directly at uh, Cuomo's old enemies in the uh, Working Families Party, uh, which survived this. Um, And there's been all this victory lapping online, you know, like this is how much the Working Families Party counts and how important it is, which is sort of hilarious because it's 150,000 people in your line, right, is uh, – and you're constantly cross-endorsing with Democrats. So so you're sort of creating a primary within the Democratic Party for who's a true Democrat, Cuomo – spoiler for them is not, you know, you're, you're obviously not of greater relevance. So it was a very shady thing of the governor to sort of change the rules to try to destroy his enemies. At the same time, those enemies claims of a broader importance, you know, like definitionally, it's hard to see how, how it's there. It's a gigantic state and you're talking about a, a relative handful of votes, but, uh, well, so, so, Two things on what you just said. One, I thought the idea of the state Senate getting to Democrats getting to a supermajority was overplayed, you know, sort of be a symbolic thing. But getting to your your point, the idea that the state Senate was going to get all of their members to override a Cuomo veto on anything of real significance 
always felt laughable to me, given, you know, some of the things that we know he could do to some of the um, some of the moderate members or swing district members. And that's an interesting theme for us to maybe pull apart a little bit is that Andrew Cuomo was much less active this election cycle than he was in 2018 when he actually did put in a good bit of work and money to help flip the state Senate to Democrats. You know, he saw some of the writing on the wall. He was on the ballot himself trying to fend off. Uh, you know, some opponents, both in the primary and the general. So some interesting shifts there from Cuomo this year, where he was pretty absent from these uh, swing district races, including Gennardis in Brooklyn and some of the Long Island races where he was pretty busy last time. On the Working Families Party, I think for the Working Families Party, this is all about the type of leverage that they want to exert in Democratic primaries. And so the fact that they were able to rally so many elected officials and politicians to help them in this campaign to keep their ballot line does say a good bit about their influence within the Democratic Party, I think. And especially as it relates to next year's mayoral race and some some other races that are coming up, you know, I think that's pretty significant to show a force they were able to put together. And of course, you know, Cuomo making them do that is a double-edged sword. They had to devote a lot of resources to it, including something close to a million dollars on their campaign. Um, but also it was an organize. it wound up being an organizing exercise for them. So, you know, Cuomo is now 0 for 2 in trying to kill the working families party. Uh, and they are 0 for 1 in trying to take him out. <laughs> ben, can you tell us a little bit more maybe about the working families party leadership and the change in leadership that is going to possibly dictate a little bit of difference in their future or not? Or do you not see... Yeah, well, you like, know, I think, what's the, what is the future of the Working Families Party? I'm I'm a touch confused. Well, I think they just had a very strong uh, primary season where they backed some supporters of the, um, you know, of incumbents in New York City in some of the state legislative races, and they they supported some you know further left candidates that won primaries that were for open seats as well. So they just had a very strong primary season in New York. And now they rallied for the general to save their ballot line, which, like I said, was a, you know, a pretty good organizing effort and also gives them momentum going into 2021 when they're hoping to play in the city in a bunch of races, including the mayoral race, I think. Um, you know, they are they're trying, I think, to sort of figure out when it's not taking on Cuomo exactly what they want to do here moving forward. Um, and that, I think, you know, they they nationally they played it, of course, in the presidential race going for Elizabeth Warren um, as opposed to Bernie Sanders, which got a lot of people worked up on the left, um, although a lot of people obviously were happy about that endorsement. And so how they decide to balance being sort of a progressive check on moderate Democrats versus the emergence of the Democratic Socialists of America in the city is going to be fascinating how much they want to work with the DSA versus being uh, you know, somewhere sort of in between that far left and the the more sort of establishment Democrats will be interesting. Um, you know, I, I think we need to get a sense of exactly what they're going to do in the city council races. They've already endorsed several women of color running for races, whether to take out incumbents or for open seats. And I think they're going to really try to to put their imprint on what the next city council looks like and probably also get involved in the citywide races of controller and uh, mayor. So it's a big open field next year, right? It's 34 council seats, every citywide office. It'd be a pretty wide reallocation of power. And Is it also the Manhattan DA? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so 2021 is a big 
a big New York power shift. And um, what what I'm curious about, because I haven't really looked into it a lot, and Ben, you probably know, is that is that intersection between like the DSA and the Working Families Party? Because like a lot of voters, we we saw what Cuomo did, kind of with uh, having you know putting all that money into Tish game, James' uh, campaign, and kind of like knocking out once and for all Zephyr Teachout um, back then in uh, 2018, and how how like worried do you think someone like Cuomo would be with both the Working Families Party and the DSA on the rise in 2021 when there's so much at stake in the city? Well, I think I think Cuomo, for example, you know, doesn't necessarily want too much pressure coming at him from the left. He's already been, you know, he's been dealing with that for a long time, basically since he's been governor. He, um, you know, to an extent negated what was boiling up in 2014. And then he had a real contest on on his hands in 2018 when he defeated Cynthia Nixon, when the Working Families Party, you know, felt that he had gone back on his 2014 agreement with them. And, uh, you know, they tried to really go after him. And, and that, of course, ended with him winning the primary handily, spending a crazy amount of, of money on it. Um, but then also then working on a deal with the Working Families Party to be on their line again in the general election. So um, just, you know, it's 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 in some ways it's kind of uh, a little bit of the underbelly of, of insidery politics. In another way, it's really about you know, the Working Families Party is trying to fight for what is the sort of soul of the Democratic Party and pull it to the left. And, you know, as a progressive party, the DSA is trying to create a socialist, you know, Democratic Party and and move the Democrats even further to the left. So, you know, the difference there is degrees. The DSA is uh, has developed in the city what's a pretty significant organization and ability to knock on doors and leaflet and do all the things that local candidates need. I don't think they see themselves as quite ready to play on a citywide level, but they're going to try to influence somewhere around four to eight, probably city council seats. And if they get a socialist caucus in the city council, that will be something very interesting to watch the Working Families Party and the DSA are a little bit competitors right now. They also work together on several races. Um, and, you know, one of the most important things for the Working Families Party continuing to keep its ballot line is, again, being able to sort of pressure candidates into uh, signing on to their, their platform. Speaking of obscene amounts of money, third parties and all that fun stuff, <laughs> Mike Bloomberg I know it was just $100 million, not the, the billion he spent on, on his own run, mostly in Florida, which was much less than he suggested he would if he wasn't the candidate. But wow, did that cash just, uh, you know, drop it from helicopters, uh, burn it on a bonfire. And in the meantime, one of his favorite third party vehicles, the uh, so-called Independence Party, um, famous for the principle of taking people who thought they were independent and getting them as members of the party has now lost its line under these new rules, unless a judge steps in. So that, that to me, along with the green party, by the way, which actually bothers running its own candidates or did, um, as, as a, uh, really interesting development. Um, in some of the coverage people were commenting, I thought weirdly that, that this really hurts Bloomberg's ability, uh, having sort of flopped nationally a couple ways to influence the 2021 mayoral race. 
My view, however, is that the 2021 mayoral race is in June and with that primary. And up till now, there's really no sign of, of an outside hero, as some people would put it, stepping in um, and, and really shifting the dynamics of that race. That the, the primary is the thing, that it's very crowded. And as best I could tell, a lot of the pressure seems to be, even with the uh, the pandemic, the rise in shootings, and this massive budget hole that we're not getting help from Washington on, the, 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 like the, the push is sort of to move further left toward additional reforms. And, uh, the, you know, if de Blasio was always splitting the baby, the, the, that's the half of the baby we need to keep keep moving toward. Ben, do you have a sense it's early, but like it's not that early. It's six months out, uh, how things are playing out and, and where this is going at the top of the ticket. Well, I, I still think that the the sort of energy and the enthusiasm in the Democratic primary party is coming from the left. And, you know, that's the the largest sort of force to be reckoned with here. Um, but I do think, you know, one of the biggest questions coming out of de Blasio in this election will, of course, be in large part a referendum on him, no matter the fact that he's not on the ballot, is this question of do people want someone with the similar professed values as de Blasio, who will actually then execute those values and sort of stay true to them and manage the city better to actually accomplish those things? Or are people in even in the Democratic Party, what size group is it that wants a little bit more of a moderate approach, even then from de Blasio and a well-run city focused on city services, focused on quality of life, you know, not always playing politics and worrying about, you know, their own image and just sort of a very strong, steady, more technocratic mayor. My sense is that that latter group is not that big, is not going to be that forceful in the primary. And even though there's a lot of people who are frustrated with de Blasio of sort of all stripes of Democrats, that the real power in the party is still more to the left. One of the most interesting things, though, will be someone like Eric Adams, who is not going to be running to the far left in the primary and, you know, where he can try to assemble a coalition of more moderate Democrats that he's hoping will start with black voters in his base of central Brooklyn and beyond to, you know, to try to counteract some of that more progressive movement uh, on the left. And then Scott Stringer, who's who's get yourself a guy who can do both is sort of his pitch. I'm a, uh, I'm a moderate. I've controlled the budget as controller as, you know, we'd like to have that formulated. Um, I, I can be trusted with numbers and I have all of these young progressives, um, who, who are winding up and behind me. Um, um, he not only it, gave a million dollars to Eric Garner's family, but he also is invested heavily in New York real estate with a lot of the pension funds. So, you know, He's a, he's a hustler. I feel like Scott Stringer is like a California role. <laughs> Say more. Where it's sort Please of explain. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's just sort of like, he's like your introduction to sushi, right? So it's like, so some people will find that he's like incredibly interesting because it's like, wow, I've never had sushi before, right? So it's like, oh, wow, Scott Stringer. So it's like, but for for some people, they're looking for something that's a little more complex and, you know, dragon roll or whatever. But he's like, no, no, no. I'm kind of like, I'm not saying defund the police. I'm not not saying that. I'm support, like, I'm progressive. Look at all my diverse, he's got a super diverse coalition. Young people, old people, you know, 
racially, ethnically diverse. He's everywhere. Like social justice orgs are like, he stops in every quarter. Like he is here like clockwork. And so he's palatable for a lot of people. But I think like a California for one. his, his, like, <laughs> like his, like a California, but his detractors, like if you know anything, about, I, I'm allergic. You can't eat, I can't eat a California <laughs> because it's, it's fake crab. So, so it's like, it's not. I think you. I think you're getting at some something really important See, here, love, which is Ben is so good at wrangling me in. No, <laughs> you're getting at something so, so important good here, which is that Scott Stringer, at this point, because most of the time, other than being city council speaker, which is part of the reason I think Corey Johnson is not going to, you know, is not has announced he's not running for mayor. Yeah. Other than that being city council speaker or mayor. You know, a lot of the times you don't have to take that many positions. You don't really have to show your cards. Mm-hmm. You don't really have to get to compromise. You can sort of throw a bunch mm-hmm. of, you know, tomatoes at the mayor and uh, and win a lot of... Uh, From a safe distance. As yes. city council speaker? No. No, not as but he city wasn't council. As, any, not as, 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 city as anybody but right, city right, council right. speaker or mayor, you don't have to make that many decisions. Now, we do need to do a lot of examination of the decisions Scott Stringer and others like Eric Adams, have made when they voted on things, when they weighed in on land use decisions, all sorts of stuff. But the real crux of what's going to happen in this mayoral campaign, or better happen, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it happens, and I know everybody else on 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 this show will as well, is we're going to have to get these people to take actual stances on things and tell us what they're actually going to do about it. And Scott Stringer is very good at professing broad value statements, and we need community planning, and we need social justice and equality and all these things that we heard from Bill de Blasio in 2013, but he's going to have to actually show you how he, how he plans to get there if he's elected. And that's going to be true for all of these candidates. And one thing we've seen from Maya Wiley in the early going, Sean Donovan, others is they're not ready to take stances on almost anything. And, and it's going to get late early here uh, pretty soon. Ben, ben, well, ben. people are tired of platitudes, right? Because that's what kind of de Blasio had especially in 2017 and i think there's this buyer's remorse that new yorkers have and so i think sadly for the candidates great for new yorkers but it's like listen de blasio set it up such that he kind of did this blanket you know tale of two cities 2017 he really didn't have to make a case that's listen that's on us as new yorkers we didn't make him make a case but i think now the 2021 candidates folks are like i don't care if you say like we need safe streets walk me through it policy positions Right. And not some arbitrary white papers like what's your plan? Day one. Who are you going to have in your cabinet? Who are you going to have in your kitchen cabinet? Like, what does it look like for us? And I've got a very related question to that. Is it going to matter what we think or is everyone sort of holding back Mm. and with rank choice, thinking about being the second choice and Mm -hmm. all that and thinking about labor and organized union support at this point? Like, are these candidates really talking to us? Or are they looking at at, at block votes and, uh, and, and financial and get out the vote supporting? I think all of it. I mean, you know, certainly mayoral candidates are going to be, want, you know, trying to rack up endorsements, as we've already seen from Stringer in pretty remarkable fashion with elected officials. But the labor unions um, and the labor unions will be one of the most interesting parts of this election, whether their endorsements have any impact at all, whether groups of unions try to rally together to have more of an impact because they were so split in 2013, the last time we had an open race. That'll be very interesting. But, you know, the candidates will be, you know, trying to appeal to, you could say pander, you know, whatever you want to say, win endorsements from all sorts. But they're also, they also care about the press narratives. They care about 
uh, you know, everything that's being said about them. I mean, the, the, you know, the, their sensitivity to media attention and media scrutiny is very high. They care about what sort of the politically engaged said, and even, you know, the editorial boards and all that say, so it's all of it, I think, but, you know, push comes to shove, they're going to much more want to sort of speak to and appease anybody they think can really move votes for them. And so, no, and I, you know, I think they're going to make a lot of promises to interest groups, but the real crux of what are you pledging to do for New Yorkers and how will you get there is, as Chrissy was just saying, is, is essential. And one of the most important things I've been thinking about this a lot and trying to figure it out. One of the most important things for this upcoming election is how do we, how do we actually judge these candidates on their ability to manage government ahead of time? Because you just, it's so, unless you've been some big leader of some, of some big institution organization, being mayor of New York city is unlike virtually anything else. And the biggest, one of the biggest things we've seen with de Blasio is his inability to manage. And how do you actually judge candidates and force them to show you and tell you what kind of leader they'll be of an organization is a very hard thing to do in a election process. Can Gotham Gazette put them through some like simulations? Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. But not like, not like the New Yorker simulations, please. (laughs) Also, it's fair to say that this is going to be a very different city. So going off what you said, Ben, like being mayor of New York is unlike anything else, but being mayor of New York in 2021 is going to be unlike anything I think people really have reference for right now. A lot of chickens are coming home to roost. I mean, we have closed our hospitals. We depended on a subway system that is now closing to ho- to house and keep warm our homeless population. Um, city detoxes have closed and we've built luxury housing that like sits empty. We've put ourselves between Bloomberg and de Blasio in a real pickle. And I think Facing unprecedented evictions are coming and evictions are coming hard. Small businesses are really, really suffering. And all de Blasio said about it was, oh, well, we need to wait on the next stimulus and maybe you guys can sell your wares on the street. I mean, this is going to be a hard city to govern come 2021. And I just feel like, like we need someone really, really real. I think what what we're looking at is there's a lot that's going to unfold between now and the next mayor coming in. One of the one of the strangest things we're going to have, which is new, is of course the Democratic nominee for mayor will be decided in June, not and September. Since uh, it's all but certain that that nominee will then be the next mayor, that's a very long uh, transition period, which is probably helpful. Uh, although obviously no one will be taking the general election for granted and we'll see who emerges in the general election. But that will be interesting and that will be probably very helpful for whoever the nominee is to have a little more of that kind of time to have one eye on transition and one eye on the general election. Um, but yes, I mean, this is almost going to be a little bit of like Barack Obama coming in and, you know, in 2009 uh, to pick up the pieces and try to to move forward. One of the biggest disadvantages for any mayor, though, is how much power is in Albany and in DC in terms of money, policy, everything else that there's so much the mayor can control. So I don't want to downplay that, but that those are real challenges. And going back to the questions about who can manage the city, you know, one of the other biggest questions that you've gotten at Harry is who can manage the relationship with Andrew Cuomo any better. Yeah. And and I mean, that's key. It is key. It's it's because we so saw Andrew essential. Cuomo was on better behavior with Mike Bloomberg because obviously he's smart enough not to flex on a billionaire. But with De Blasio, it's just it's it's like a 
an abusive relationship that we are all caught it's in. It's really hurting the flow of information, to be honest, especially with these many. And people are losing lives. That's- Literally, because of their lack of communication and their inability to be grown ass men and executives of their respective you know, kingdom. Both both of their <laughs> worst tendencies feed into the other, and it's really problematic. Yeah. And we saw that, to your point about costing lives, we saw that with this idea that de Blasio would go on national TV and sort of float a shelter-in-place order, which immediately gets Cuomo to basically, he doesn't, he doesn't even hear exactly what it is. He's just going to spend two days crapping on de Blasio for suggesting something that, you know, should have come through the chain of command, right? So, you know, they both sort of... Um, have retreated to but some we, of their worst but we've had we've had this with the snowstorm and the subways, right? We oh, had yeah. this with Legionnaire's disease. And it was just like, now we have it with coronavirus and there's no clear direction. I mean, sorry, parents out there, like you guys can't get any any clarity or focus from either one of them. So I, I, I think that the next mayor, I think you're spot on. Like not only is ranked choice voting going to be so important to see how they campaign, but the governance piece and the relationships that they're going to have with not just whomever the speaker may be. We have to also figure out a new staggered system for city council. Mm. We can't keep having two thirds overturn every eight years. Like that is yeah. just, we need to go like the Senate, like a third, a third, a third. We have to do something um, to put them on a schedule so we're not having this tumult every two, every eight years with the new rules of, of term limits. Yeah, well, uh, last, you know, city council speaker uh, race, there was that little bit of discussion about changing the council terms to three terms. And, you know, that got shot down because there's still all this PTSD around the extension of term limits under Bloomberg and, and Quinn, who, by the way, Christine Quinn is, you know, the biggest name to keep watching in terms of potential entrance, I think, into the 2021 mayoral race. But, um, but there's some interesting, absolutely discussion to have around what the city council turnover should look like, what terms should look like. Um, I think, I think that's a really important point just to sort of add one more thing to this discussion about the next mayor. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing basically sort of two camps emerge within the democratic primary field. One is this group that's trying to pitch themselves as a manager of the city to, to bring the city out of crisis to provide services, to not have everything be around, you know, politics and ideology and such. And then we're seeing sort of the, you know, this, this push to the left um, among candidates who are seizing on really important themes around equality uh, to try to, you know, move the city towards a more progressive future. Uh, Stringer is among those who's really trying to merge the two and sort of speak to, to both of those. I think a lot of the candidates will try to speak to both of those, but we are seeing sort of a a cleavage in the field early on about, you know, who's sort of trying to talk to managing the city, being the adult in the room and such. And then this other group trying to really say, here's the values we really need to follow as a city. So that that's my closing question here is, uh, it's hard to be a, a Harry one note, but $10 billion <laughs> deficit here. The MTA is looking at $12 billion. They're talking about maybe we have to cut service by 40%, which is theatrical, but also like literally there's nowhere to put the trains if they cut that much service, right? We don't have that much train storage. Like the trains have to run or where would they go? I guess we could throw them into the Pacific or the Atlantic, you know, and get some coral reefs. (laughs) Um, $20 billion for the state. Like this this is a looming disaster. So my questions are one. How in the midst of that are our elected leaders now 
not talking so much about this. De Blasio keeps reaching budget deals with organized labor that, that basically kick imaginary savings into future years and treating those like real dollars. Cuomo saying as little as possible, but the people running to be mayor, <clears throat> and I understand it's hard to run on, there's going to be less, but there is going to be less. And one of them is going to win and is going to have to deal with that. How is there no candidate touching on that? And why would any of these people want this job right now? <laughs> well, a little bit of it goes back to, I think, what I was saying about Barack Obama coming in. I mean, you know, you, you when you come in when things are in really bad place, you know, you'd like to think the only the only direction is up. So maybe you can be sort of the, the person that brings the city back from the brink. And that's appealing to some people. But I also think a lot of these people, they wanted to be mayor. They were going to run for mayor. You know, the situation changed and they're not going to change their plans. They'd love to be mayor of New York City. Maybe, you know, Corey Johnson being an exception here, although he obviously said he was also dealing with some mental health issues and, you know, personal challenges that impacted his decision. So, you know, I don't know that politicians, you know, people who think they should be mayor of New York City, I don't know how grounded they're going to be by any any of this stuff. Um, I've wanted to argue with you a little bit on this, so I'm glad we have the opportunity now uh, <laughs> because – Ooh, Fight Club FAQ. I totally agree with what you're saying. And, you know, I've been tweeting all the time about stuff I've said on this show about people need to take positions on things. They need to answer questions. You know, watching Scott Stringer and Maya Wiley and some of these others answer questions at the first mayoral forum that was had um, by the Jim Mallows Club and listening to them do interviews on radio programs where they don't say anything. They talk and talk and talk and they don't say anything other than maybe a broad value statement. That's driving me crazy already. The primaries in June, they need to start telling us what they really think and what they'll, they'll really do. In terms of them outlining like a big rescue plan for the city, I do think it's a little early. That, that's that's the only thing I want to argue with you about. You know, I mean, maybe after the new year, let's see what happens in this federal election. Let's see what things look like uh, with, you know, potentially a new president. What happens with the Congress? You know, I don't think it's crazy for them, you know, for the candidates to be laying out their plans more in February than in October, uh, November. So that's my thought on that. It's not obviously as big an argument as I as I <laughs> indicated it would be, but I'm not one to be patient here, but I really think, you know, they have a little bit of time to do that. And if we want them to be really thoughtful about it, they actually have to hire people on, you know, on their campaigns to dig into budget documents and show us what they'll actually do with the city budget. And that takes skill and time. How about how about like a value statement is fire Shea, which pretty much everyone in this field agrees about. Sure. There are specific reasons with Shea and what's been happening lately, and it's what every mayor does. So it's actually not saying anything, right? Yeah, Here's who exactly. I bring in. That's saying something. If you can be specific about that. If you say, I'm going to bring in someone from outside the NYPD, that'd be a real interesting thing to say. Like firing Shea. Like, give us I a name. Care. Yeah. Yeah. Give us someone. Like, Because the thing is, had, had uh, Bill de Blasio said, I'm going to bring in Bill Bratton. I would have had some thoughts. A good point. A I would have said, point. you know, he's he's talking about end, stop, and frisk. Okay, I'm with that, obviously. But had he said, I'm going to end, stop, and frisk, and then bring on one of the architects of all the issues and problems that we have in the NYPD, then I would have said, slow down, Warren Willem. I think we need to have a conversation. So, here, so here's what 
is going to happen and we need to try to disrupt is, you know, these candidates are going to come on your show. They're going to come on our show. They're going to do all sorts of interviews for print and, you know, and broadcast. And people are going to ask them, are, are you, you know, would you, they're already asking, obviously, will you keep Dermot Shea? As Harry said, that's an easy one. Nobody wants to keep Dermot Shea. Okay. Right. But, but you can ask them, are you going to bring in someone from out, outside the NYPD? Just like people, you know, are asking, would you make up someone with public school experience, you know, uh, the chance? Mm-hmm. Okay. The candidates are going to come on and say, oh, yeah, that's absolutely something I'll look at. Right? And there's a difference between saying that and absolutely 100% I'm going to bring in someone from outside the NYPD to run it. And we might get that answer from some of the people who are really trying to run in the progressive lane, like Diane Morales, Carlos Menchaca, and some of these folks that that'll be really interesting. And I do think mm-hmm. there's a chance that city council member Menchaca coming into this race is going to shake things up to the extent. I don't know if he can raise any money. I don't know how he'll do exactly, but I do think he's someone that can come in and shake up this race in that he will take some bold positions that everybody else is going to have to start to respond to. And that'll be really interesting because that puts pressure on Scott Stringer and Maya Wiley and others to actually take positions on things. If he's sort of, um, you know, put it, setting up the the goalposts. Uh, yeah. And so, so we'll see. Now, Ben, do you think, you know, you said they're going to have to hire folks to, you know, help sort of dig through some of the stuff, but don't you think it's a little difficult right now since so many New Yorkers kind of don't want to walk and chew gum at the same time and they want, the presidential race to kind of wrap up before they really kick into high gear and thinking about the mayor's race and also giving money to mayoral candidates. Is is that a potential barrier? Or, or yeah, what? well, I, you know, some of these candidates have raised a good bit of money already. I do think it's going to be a question mark for uh, some of them. I mean, you know, like I said, Carlos Menchaca, Diane Morales, Catherine Garcia, the former sanitation commissioner. Let's see what kind of money she can raise, you know, Sean Donovan, Eric Adams, Scott Stringer, they have a bunch of money in the be- in the bank. I think Maya Maya's got national money she'll, that she she'll can be fine, right? Exactly. And then you and then everybody, you know, participating in the matching system will then, you know, be able to pr- probably, you know, a lot of them will be able to get to the max. The question are a few of these candidates will they will they be able to get the money raised they need to to get the max. Um, and then there's Ray McGuire, who I haven't mentioned, who come, you know, is probably not going to participate in the matching system, could raise a ton of Wall Street money, national money. And, you know, he could he could upend the race a little bit, at least, you know, compete for some of the votes, especially with someone like Eric Adams as another black man running uh, on a more moderate platform, you know, would be very interesting. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I don't think I don't think most New Yorkers are going to pay attention to this race until February at the earliest. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think February 1st is sort of when the mayor's race starts in yeah. some sad ways. And it'll be a sprint. And that's where, again, getting uh, these candidates to actually show us what they're going to do, take positions on things and such is um, is going to be so essential because June, the June vote is going to be here before we know it. And as they're all mostly, I think, trying to play nice because of ranked choice voting – uh, it, it'll be difficult, you know, they're going to, we're going to need to push them to differentiate themselves from each other in, in significant ways. But I, I do think, you know, that will happen as the, as the campaign unfolds. Right. Well, shout out to Max and Murphy podcast for those of you who are listening. Um, if it's not found here, it'll definitely be found. Here. <laughs> it's always, um, it's always great talking with you guys. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to see, where what happens with all these absentee ballots where we started this discussion in the tw- in the 2020 election because 
right now, you know, I mentioned this thing about like Republicans look like they're having a little bit of a comeback in New York, uh, like a like a minor step back from the abyss of 2018. But once we see all these absentee ballots counted, we'll see if that's actually true. And the results of these local elections are absolutely going to impact how candidates are thinking about 2021 mm-hmm. in some of these pockets, especially of Brooklyn, uh, that, you know, will be very interesting to see who's really trying to appeal to some of these uh, neighborhoods, assembly districts, et cetera, that are, are voting more heavily Republican in this in this presidential and down ballot races this this time around. But it'll be interesting to see how they're registered because we still have closed primary systems. So if people are registered as a Republican or even an independent, then they can't participate. Small independent now because we killed the party, it looks like. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, All right. So next time you come back, let's let's sift through the candidates a little bit more. The law and order types versus the social justice types versus the economic types. And I think that maybe we should come up with like a rubric. Love it. We appreciate you, man. It's my it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And now, here's a return guest, Albert Foxconn, talking with Alex Brooklyn about Cuomo, the vaccine, privacy, and everything that's going to make 2021 another interesting year. Welcome, Albert, our resident like <laughs> expert on all things. Uh, evil surveillance. So earlier this week, last week, a few days ago, Cuomo kind of was grandstanding about how he was really going to protect New Yorkers from some of the federal mandates around giving out the vaccine to cities and states. There was some stipulation saying like, not only was the vaccine going to be mailed by private mail carriers, so not the USPS, but also administered through our private health care system, which Cuomo had some criticism of, but also that they were the federal government was going to require uh, some of the patient information if they were going to give up the vaccine. So almost leveraging people's privacy against uh, getting that patient information from you know, and around COVID-19 and who was administered the vaccine. Cuomo was pretty, you know, big. I'm going to protect our state. I'm going to protect the privacy. So what, uh, I know you have some thoughts on that and some knowledge. Uh, do you want to let us at FAQ know about that? Yeah. So Cuomo's rhetoric has been great on, on privacy. The problem is he hasn't actually done a damn thing to protect New Yorkers' privacy during this pandemic. And we've been calling on him along with other community groups and activists to actually live up to those promises. One of the one of the key things that we wanted was him to sign uh these uh great bills passed back in July. Uh Senate Bill 8450, Assembly Bill 10500. And what they would do is say that we're actually going to keep contact tracing data private. You can't use it if you're a police department. You can't use it uh, to as part of a, a criminal investigation. You can't use it to retaliate against people and track political protests and all the ways that we fear that this sort of um, data could be misused. But the governor, months later, no matter how many times we call his office, no matter how many times we write about it in the uh, media, he still hasn't signed the bill. And it's infuriating because today – as a matter of law, there's nothing to prevent ICE, to prevent the NYPD, to prevent other government agencies 
from getting a warrant or even a subpoena to access our contact tracing data. And, and we need to do better. We need to make sure that data is completely private. So the app that people are using now, the app that they're being encouraged to download, is that accessible from, by the NYPD? So the app that we've been spending a lot of money on is really problematic. We started looking at the methodology that they're using back in May. And, and this is sort of a, a partnership we've seen from Google and Apple to try to use our phones to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And look, if this was a way to keep myself safe, to keep my family safe, to keep my neighbors safe, I would say, yes, I will do this no matter what the privacy impact. But the problem is it just doesn't work. This methodology hasn't actually proven effective at when it's been used in other countries. We see a lot of people getting false alarms. We see that the apps will uh, be uh, give a lot of false negatives, a lot of false positives, because you know, Bluetooth signal isn't a great way to tell how far away someone else is. But on top of that, you know, all of the privacy protections, all, all of the promises being made, they're all technical promises. And, and, you know, that that encryption, it's helpful, but it's not enough. For example, there's nothing here to stop a Bluetooth beacon operator or a, uh, um, you know, a landlord from installing this to see if COVID is spreading in their building. To, you know, to basically install stationary Bluetooth uh, points in order to try to check uh, the health status of people in that facility. We hear all of these technical promises, but really the, the rhetoric isn't enough. For example, you know, there's nothing to say that, you know, if the encryption can be broken, that it wouldn't be misused by police and ICE. But on top of that, in top of the ways we've shown that there are vulnerabilities to this approach using Bluetooth, there isn't uh, protection against coercion. Apple and Google keep saying that it's voluntary. But what happens if someone gets told that they'll get fired from their job if they don't use the app? What happens if someone gets told that they can't show up to school if they don't use the app? There's nothing to protect against that sort of coercion as part of these apps. And there's still this really potent privacy risk. What happens if they say that, you know, your uh, low income housing is at risk if you don't use the app? Yeah. And to be clear, we're not seeing those efforts. What we're saying is we're basically in the Wild West right now. We have a lot of promises being made, but we have no real legal protections against having New Yorkers turned into second-class citizens if they don't use this app that's collecting a huge amount of information. And, and we also don't see uh, you know, protections against the sort of you know, widespread uh, tracking that we've seen with other sorts of Bluetooth technology. There, there are some safeguards here, but having that sort of layer of encryption that Apple and Google talk about, it's just not enough. Instead of spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars on ads to promote this app that probably won't work, that definitely is insecure and where we have no legal safeguards against the sort of abuse we're talking about, we should be spending that money on the sort of manual contact tracing that we know works. We should be investing in evidence-based measures. We should be investing those dollars where it actually is proven to do some good. But instead, we have these tech companies swooping in saying, we have the solution. We don't have evidence it works. We don't have FDA approval. We don't have any certification. We just have these promises and a whole lot of open questions about how that information can be weaponized in practice. 
What are one or two of the things that does work where you would think we should invest our dollars? We've seen amazing success when you partner with local community groups to actually have evidence-based contact tracing, manual contact tracing, where you're making sure that contact tracers speak the language of the people they're reaching out to, that they're a member of their community. That's not some stranger from a far-off part of the state, but that it's really uh, someone who's from around the block, around the corner, someone they go to church with, someone who they know from a community center, someone who they can relate to and trust and uh, have that rapport. Because when we're talking about contact tracing data, it's so intimate. And if there's even a hint that information can be misused, if there's even a a fear in the back of your mind, so many people will will clam up. Because if they're forced to choose between giving information that can get their friends and family arrested or deported and you know, helping to stop the spread of the pandemic, a lot of people will hesitate. And that's why we need privacy protections to make it absolutely clear that this information can never be misused to uh, to target our, our friends and family. I mean, there's one reason why I've never done the ancestry thing or the DNA thing. And that reason is because, like, I have no idea if I mean, I'm pretty sure none of my relatives are murderers, but, you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of them are in men. I don't want them to get arrested because I had to find out, like, if I was a quarter Scottish, which I already know that I am. Um, so, you know, <laughs> anyway, on that note, thank you for um, enlightening me and elaborating on a subject. Because when I heard Cuomo, I was just kind of like, this is one of those grandstands. This is a big promise. And. You know, it's a lot to do with privacy. Let me go ask my friends uh, over at Surveillance and the City and bring Albert back on to kind of clear things up. Thank you again for being on FAQ. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you next time we have a question about dystopian tech. Thank you so much for having me. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests this week, Gotham Gazette Executive Editor and Max and Murphy co-host Ben Max and Surveillance Technology Oversight Project Director and co-host of the Surveillance in the City podcast, Albert Fox Kahn. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Wear a mask, get a flu shot, keep it 100. I'm Chrissy Greer. My co-host is Harry Siegel. Take good care.